Well, amen to that. I'd like to just begin by expressing my gratitude to this church, not only for the opportunity I've been given today, but also simply for the fellowship that I've been privileged to take part in over these last year and a half or so, as we've come together faithfully week after week to be exhorted, rebuked, and built up in faith as our elders faithfully preach the word from this very pulpit. So I do not consider it a light thing to be standing here in this pulpit today preaching this same glorious word as we turn together to Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians in chapter number 4 is our text. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 3 and go through the 7th verse. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, and not of us. Brethren, the grass withers and the flower fades, but this word endures forever. Let's pray over it. O Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you are a God who is there and who is not silent. We thank you that you have shown your gospel on our hearts, and we pray, O oh God, that we might see and experience that gospel tonight as we look into your holy text. And, O oh God, we pray that your spirit might work in such a way as to shine the light of this gospel on the heart of one in our midst, even for the first time. We plead for salvations, Lord, for you are the God of salvation. Strengthen your people, save your people, and build your church, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. I think it's safe to assume that many of you here today are generally familiar with the history of the Protestant Reformation, that great time of theological recovery within the church of the Lord Jesus a time in which people went back to the Word of God to retrieve what had been lost over centuries of tradition. As we heard last Lord's Day evening, good theology has very practical implications for us. Theology is not an esoteric thing. It's not just an abstract thing. It affects how we live, how we think, and how we worship. In fact, that question of worship was one of the central tenets of the Calvinistic stream of the Reformation. How is the church to worship? How do we know what is acceptable to our God? Well, the Reform came along and said that we know what's acceptable to God in worship by what he has revealed in his word. 
Our worship is regulated by the word of God. Simple enough, right? And thus, the vast array of depictions of Jesus within sanctuaries had to be done away with. Not only did God not command us to worship using images, but he explicitly condemned it in the second commandment. And so many faithful men and women of the 16th century took up paintbrushes in the cause of doctrinal purity as they whitewashed over these great cathedrals, painting over these ornate uh, depictions of Christ throughout these European sanctuaries. The Reformed are not an ornate people because we realize our adornment is not of this world. Our worship is simple because the church is a spiritual reality and not an institutional one. We are ultimately of the city of God, not the city of man. Flesh and blood did not reveal these things to us, but our Father in heaven. And so our worship reflects this, our church buildings reflect this. In fact, this very church building, if you look around, it reflects this reality. We do not use images and altars because we recognize that we were never meant to see the face of Jesus in that way. We are not meant to behold the face of Christ in a picture frame, but we are meant to behold him in his gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So may we seek to see that very face of Christ in his gospel today as we look into our text under these three headings. Firstly, we will consider hell's veil. Secondly, Christ's light. And thirdly, we will consider ourselves as the potter's plotters. Potter's plotters. So let's direct our attention firstly now to survey hell's veil. Hell's veil. Now, this text comes to us in the context of Paul's exposition of the glories of the new covenant ministry. A ministry which, unlike the covenant made with Moses, is a ministry of righteousness, of life, and of reconciliation. And in this previous chapter, chapter number three, we see Paul using the imagery of a veil, a covering, to describe the covenant made with Moses. When Moses is read, that is, when the law of God is read, Paul says a veil, a veil lies on the heart of man. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And brethren, that is the nature of the covenant under which we now live. We live in a time where we can turn to the Lord because Christ has made a way. And yet, the tension is... That when the law is read, when Moses is read, to this day the apostle says, the veil remains. Why is this? What exactly is this veil? It was there in the time of Moses and it is there today. Perhaps it is even on some of those in our very midst. What is keeping you from the glories of a life in Christ? What is this covering that lies over your heart? Consider with me verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 
should shine on them. The veil, brethren, is unbelief. The veil is a hardened heart, a heart that is callous and indifferent to the things of God. And this veil is there by our very nature. This veil is present over the heart of every man born of woman, save one. This veil is the effect of sin because our father and mother sinned in the garden. Our minds and our hearts have been so corrupted that we are now alienated from our God. We are separated. We are blinded from him. To use the words of Isaiah 59 and 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden your face from him so that he will not hear. And yet our text seems to speak of another veil that exists in the hearts of some, perhaps even in the hearts of some here today. And this is more particularly what I mean when I speak of hell's veil. Such a veil comes about to those who were born into the world in sin, as all men were, but also to those who have heard the gospel actually preached. To those who have heard Jesus Christ proclaimed in his glorious word. To those who have been offered the mercies of God in his beloved son and yet who have rejected them wholesale. For those who have rejected the grace of God in Christ, the scriptures say that there is a supernatural veil that is blinding your heart. Look once more at verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe. The God of this age has blinded your heart. This this is no light thing, right? We see here that the gospel faces demonic and indeed satanic opposition. The God of this age, Satan himself, is working to deceive and to blind the hearts of those who hear the word. Those of you who come here week after week... You young people who perhaps begrudgingly are drugged here by your parents. Every week that you hear the gospel and go away unchanged, the scriptures say that your heart is being blinded by the enemy. Satan is coming behind to pluck away the word that was planted in your heart. You may think this is ridiculous. May count this message as foolishness and continue in the wisdom of this world. But as you do so, know that you are giving in to the very deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. It lies to you. That is the nature of sin. It makes promises that it does not keep. That is what sin is and that is what it does. And as an unbeliever, your heart is veiled by it. It is covered by sin. It is ruled by sin. The fool is blind to his own foolishness, right? And so too you are blinded by your sins. Some of you, most of you in fact, know that when I'm here at school, I work part-time at Chick-fil-A over on Bardstown Road. And you probably know that this is not necessarily the nicest part of town, amen? Right? That's, a, that's an understatement. <laughs> There's a lot of homelessness there and that drugs are a major factor in this, So I see all sorts of interesting things play out and work. Last week I was working outside and a woman came just straggling across the parking lot. She was clearly homeless, clearly in a rough place in her life and frankly pie out of her mind. She stumbled across the parking lot singing 
uh, loudly and incoherently and then proceeded to stand in the middle of the Costco gas station lot and divert traffic singing and dancing like a fool the entire time. And while this is somewhat comical at first glance, perhaps, as I stood there at work for a few minutes watching this, I felt immense compassion for the woman. She affected me in a rather strange way. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It was a very sad situation. It's a very sad thing to look at her because I know that in her mind, she was somewhere else entirely. She was so blinded by her drug abuse that she could not comprehend, the, frankly, the stupidity and the utter shame of her actions, degrading herself, acting like a fool. It's a sad situation. And for those who live blinded by sin, for those who live their lives veiled to the gospel of grace, you live like this woman. You are blind to your own stupidity. You're blind to your own shame. Perhaps in your mind, you're fine. Your mind, everything's just a-okay. But in the end, you are not okay because there will come a day you will see your actions for the foolishness that they are. You will see your shame. You will see the vanity of your life. Because the light has, in fact, come into the world. Christ has, in fact, come into the world. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. There is coming a day when the books will be open and you will be made to give account. But as for this day, February 11, the 2024th year of our Lord, the gospel message still bids us come and welcome Come confess your sin. Come behold the light of Jesus Christ in his gospel. The promise may not stand tomorrow, lest the Lord tarry, but it stands today. And so in light of this, let us shift our attention to consider, secondly, the glorious truth of Christ's light. Christ's light. Though it is true that a veil lies over the hearts of men by nature... And even that a satanic veil lies over the hearts of those who reject the gospel in their hearing. It is not the case that this veil can never be lifted. Every member of this body can attest to the lifting of the veil. Although it is not a veil that can ultimately be lifted by men. But a veil that can only be rent as the light of the gospel effectually calls us into life in Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In chapter 3, Paul speaks of this veil being lifted as one turns unto the Lord in faith. Verse 6 of our text expounds on this to a greater degree. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I must say that this is one of my favorite verses in the whole of Scripture. I mean, what, what a glorious truth this verse contains. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This verse is clearly speaking of the reality of the new 
birth. And in it, the new birth is connected intimately to creation itself. This is obviously no accident. This connection ought to communicate to us exactly what God has done in bringing us to Christ. It is the same God who created the world and all things therein who has set his love on us. It is the same God who created and sustains entire worlds, indeed entire universes, who has revealed himself to us in his gospel. It is the God who created all things that are in heaven and that are on earth, whether uh, invisible or invisible, thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, who has revealed to us his very face. And he has done so in his gospel. He has revealed himself to us in a personal way, in an intimate way, in fact. The gospel of our Lord Jesus is effectual. It is powerful. It is mighty to save. The very God who spoke the worlds into existence, this same God who said, let there be light, looked to us as he did to Lazarus and said, come forth. He has shown in our hearts and he has done it unto the end that we might know and love him. That we might see His face. What a good God we have, brethren. What a glorious gospel we possess. Scripture tells us elsewhere that creation was done through the Lord Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Christ is the agent of creation. God created through the word, and that word is the Lord Jesus. And that same word, the word that was spoken and that commanded light to come into the world, that same word took on flesh. The eternal God became a man taking the form of a servant. And he came bringing good news. Where Moses came bringing the law, a ministry of death, Paul says, Christ came bringing grace and truth. He came bringing life, and that life was the light of men. The Gospel of John tells us Christ was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, as we heard this morning, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brethren, we are those born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are those upon whom the light of the gospel has shone. The very God who spoke light into the darkness of the void has so shone in our hearts. And he has done so by his word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as the psalmist would say. Growing up, I was in the Boy Scouts, and one of the things we did every couple years was we took a trip into different cavern systems, different cave systems scattered throughout Tennessee. And on one particular trip, our guide took us rather deep into one of these caves. We were well over a mile in, if I remember correctly. 
And he took us to a small cranny in one of these caves and asked us to turn off the uh, headlamps we were wearing. We experienced total darkness. Perhaps some of you have had a similar experience. It was just complete blackness. You could not even see your hand in front of your face. It's really quite a strange experience. You get disoriented very quickly into it. You know, it makes you think if you were to find yourself miles into one of these vast cave systems and your headlight went out, what would you do? You're there alone. You got no light. It would almost be impossible to ever get out as you're miles and miles into one of these caves. You'd likely grope around in the void and eventually, frankly, you just die of hunger or thirst. That really is, I think, a good illustration for the state of our souls. That is the effect of the veil that lies over our hearts. We are blinded by it. We cannot get ourselves out of this pit of darkness alone. We cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. But glory be, the God who in the beginning spoke light into the darkness by his word has shown in our hearts. He has brought light into our darkened state. He has shown in our hearts by his gospel, and he has set us on the path of righteousness for his name's sake, preparing us for that last day when we shall see him face to face. But in the main, we look to his word. In the main, we search the scriptures, for it is only here, as one man has said, we can find the authorized portrait of Jesus. It is through the preaching of the gospel that Christ both illuminates our hearts unto salvation and sanctification. It is God who works these things upon us. It is all of grace. The apostle states in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. It is all of Christ. Christ is the one who created the world from nothing. And he is the one who both saves and sanctifies us unto the end that we might know and glorify him. It is his light that shines in the darkness of our hearts and that continues to shine forth until that day when we shall inhabit the city of God that we just read about. That city which has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine for the glory of God himself illuminates it. The Lamb is its light. But until that day, we plod along in faith, and we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and indeed eternal weight of glory. So in light of this, let us shift our attention to consider now finally and thirdly ourselves as the potter's plotters, potter's plotters. Look with me at verse number seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We see continually throughout the whole of scripture, the weakness of man highlighted over And over again. It's a recurring theme from the beginning of time until the end of the age. We are creatures. We are fallen creatures at that. We require things like sleep 
and food to sustain us. We can fall down. We can scrape our knee. We can break our arms. We can get hurt, right? There are a host of weaknesses even among the strongest of men. Surely, the psalmist writes, men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Each of us feels this weakness, and many of us feel it in very real and very present ways. Some of you battle with chronic sickness. Others of you are feeling the effects of your age. Others are dealing with financial pressure and high degrees of stress at work or in your financial life. The list goes on and on for each of us. We all know these weaknesses. We are acquainted with them intimately. We are frail creatures. We are what the Apostle calls here earthen vessels. If you're using something other than the King James or the New King James as I am, your text likely, likely translates this as pots of clay. We have this treasure in pots of clay. That is the nature of our being. We are these earthen vessels, these pots of clay, fragile beings. We are prone to weakness, to sickness, to brokenness. That is who we are. And it is in us, weak vessels though we may be, that God has shown his gospel of grace. It is to us that he has revealed himself in an intimate and a personal way. It is unto us that he has shown his face. But not only has our God chosen us as weak, feeble, and sinful recipients of his grace, but he has called us to be his witnesses in this world, to take this same glorious message and to share it with others aimlessly wandering in that dark cave of sin and of death. We have the privilege to go forth in the world with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God upon our lips. Yes, we know that we will face opposition. Yes, we know it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is the God whom we serve, and this is the gospel which we preach. God has called us on no merit of our own, to be recipients of his amazing grace. We are indeed debtors to mercy alone. Where is boasting then? Ask Paul in the letter to the Romans. It is excluded. We are nothing more than earthen vessels. We are mere instruments in the hands of our omnipotent God, our all-powerful God. Yes, we possess this treasure, and we have even been instructed with taking that treasure unto the ends of the earth. But we do so in these earthen vessels. Fairly recently in England, they crowned a new monarch. King Charles, in May of last year, was officially crowned in this long-awaited coronation ceremony. I will say, I don't really follow I didn't really follow this event very closely. The royal family's not really my thing, you might guess. Uh, however, one thing I did hear in passing, it really was in passing, trust me. Uh, I found it quite interesting, though, was that the crown they used to coronate Charles was actually last used all the way back in 1953 at Queen Elizabeth's coronation. 
And even there, it was only used for a few moments. The crown, St. Andrew's crown as it's called, was originally made in 1661. And of course, it's just absolutely priceless. I mean, it's just worth tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. It's so precious that even the monarchs themselves aren't permitted to wear it for more than a few moments in their entire lives. They actually switch out crowns in the middle of the ceremony for that very purpose. And you know, at least when I think of the crown jewels, my mind immediately goes to all the movies where these jewels are stolen. The master thieves are able to get through all the security at the Tower of London, and they finally get up to the top room. The last of the alarms are uh, done away with, and they at last behold this crown in its glass case or outside of its glass case, rather. It's, it's a very protected item. It's a very valuable item. I want you to imagine that you got invited to this coronation ceremony. You're standing there in Westminster Abbey as one of the honored guests. And as you're standing there, this priceless crown, instead of being transported out on some little fancy velvety pillow, instead they brought it out in just a dirty clay pot something straight out of the home and garden section of Walmart. It doesn't quite seem fitting, does it? A priceless treasure contained within a weak, inornate, and fragile vessel. When that crown is beheld there by those in attendance, they're not going to comment and just go, Oh my goodness, did you see that pot? Did you see that earthen vessel there? Look how just excellently it held that crown. Man, just... Look at that. No, they're going to be in awe of the crown, right? And they're just going to be enamored. But the pot was honored to carry such a glorious symbol of power. Well, in the same way, our own weakness is meant to showcase the glorious power of our God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Again, all boasting is excluded. It is all of grace. It is all of Christ. It is His power that is made perfect in our weakness. It is His light that is so shown in our hearts. It is His gospel we partake in, and it is His face that we behold as His word is opened and preached. We shall continue to behold such a face week after week, as we gather together for the preaching of this word. We shall continue to see that face as we behold him in his gospel throughout the whole of our lives. And we shall continue to labor and to plod ahead for the spread of this marvelous gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and we proclaim the excellencies of Christ until that day when we shall see our potter face to face when he returns in the glory of his kingdom. Brethren, this is our hope today, that the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So may we all come and behold this Christ in faith whether it be for the first time or the 10,000th, he stands with open arms. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, we are thankful for this gospel message. We are thankful that Christ has died and that he has risen from the grave. We are thankful for this gospel age that we live in. We are thankful that your light has shone in our hearts. And Father, we pray that that same gospel might shine in the hearts of some in our midst, even now, and draw them unto faith in your beloved and precious Son. We pray that we all might see his face tonight as we meditate upon his wonderful gospel. We ask and pray in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and ask our brother Daryl. He's going to close us out in the singing of the doxology, and you'll be dismissed with the Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.